The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be at the end of Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's one under a chair close by. We're on page 856. And while you're finding that, if you're a guest with us today, we'd love for you to use a connect card in the back of the chair. If you fill out the information on that, and at the end of our service, we're going to receive our offering by passing an offering plate. We only want you to participate by placing that connect card in the plate and letting us know that you are here worshiping and celebrating together with us today. My desire today is to help you pause for a few minutes and to reboot, to refocus your heart and mind. And my prayer is that you're going to set aside the stress and strain that we ridiculously place on ourselves to buy presents and go places over the next few days and that you will set aside any worry and thought about impeachment and all those matters, and that we will focus our hearts as followers of Jesus where we ought to. To look into his word, to look into the richness of Scripture. Now, what I'm going to do today is is share with you from Zechariah's prophecy at the end of Luke chapter 1, And I'm going to try to help you connect it to the rest of the Bible. I'm going to try to help you understand it. And to understand it, you got to understand what's been going on and what God is doing. So Luke chapter 1, reading beginning with verse 67. Would you stand as we acknowledge this is the word of God? And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, only you can lead us into all truth. I am incapable of such. But I pray now that through the preaching of your word that you will guide our minds and our hearts and that you will lead us to both comprehend 
what is being said and to see what is being said. And may it have life-changing transformation in each of our hearts and lead us to rejoicing. Help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want you to hold yourself place in Luke chapter 1. Flip past Mark and Matthew to your left till you come to the end of the Old Testament. I'm going to try to help you see the distinct nature in which Luke begins his gospel. This is the last words God speaks in the Old Covenant and goes silent for hundreds of years. The last two sentences. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Silence. Now you go to Luke chapter 1. After Luke gives you a brief introduction, really he's offering the dedication to Theophilus. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, verse 5, there was a priest named Zechariah. Now let me just summarize what happens. Zechariah is married to Elizabeth. They are both very old and have never been able to have children, though they have prayed for children for many years. Zechariah goes into the temple to offer incense. While he is there, the angel Gabriel appears to him and tells him that Elizabeth is going to conceive and she's going to give birth to a son and that they are to name that son John. Zechariah has a hard time believing this. As a result, he is stricken to not be able to speak through this period of time. And some scholars would even interpret to say he can't hear either. Elizabeth conceives, and then we come to verse 57. Now let me tell you what happens in the middle of that. The announcement to Mary that she's going to conceive and have the Messiah, Jesus. She's to name him Jesus. And then Mary sings a song. Before she sings, Elizabeth sings a brief song. Now you come to the birth of John the Baptist. Now the time for Elizabeth to give birth, verse 57... And she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. So typically, the firstborn son got the name of his father, or at least the name of a relative, and name him John. Now, you, you may say, all right, how did, how did she know that, that he was supposed to name the child John when Zachariah couldn't speak? Well, just use simple logic with the next verse and you'll understand it. He asked, or he made signs to the father inquiring that he wanted him to be called and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. So you just got to use simple logic and say, well, if he wrote it down for everybody there, he wrote it down for Elizabeth and she knew. Now, he doesn't say his name will be John. What does he say? His name is John. 
His child's already been named. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors and all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them upon their hearts saying, what then will this child be from the hand, the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So, brothers and sisters, this, this needs to rise to the front of your mind. This is the first time God speaks publicly since Malachi. He's spoken privately to Zechariah, and he's spoken privately to Mary and Joseph. Now he speaks publicly through this priest, Zechariah. And here's what transpires as he makes this prophetic song known. Now, here's what, here's what I would think. If I'm an old dude and I had my wife and have babies and we finally have a baby, if I'm going to write a song or a poem, I'm going to write it about the kid, right? That's not what the song's about. He mentions his son very briefly in this song. This song is about Christ. And what this song reveals is that the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's the main idea, the main thing that we want to see today. One author said, this is a song of hope. Elizabeth's song was a song of love in verses 42 to 45. Mary's song in verses 46 to 55 was a song of faith. And now Zechariah sings a song of hope, not a vague hope, not a wish for the future. Zechariah sang a confident hope which was sure and certain. It was something he looked forward to because it was the fulfillment of God's promise to and for his people. So let's see that the promises of God are revealed in Jesus Christ. They're made known in Christ. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And notice this. Zechariah does not say he will visit and redeem his people. What does he say? He has. He has visited and redeemed his people. He speaks of this as it has already happened. And if you'll just pause and ponder for a moment, it has. Because there's this young virgin who is carrying the Son of God. When did Christ come into the world? The answer is conception. We're coming to the great moment of his birth in chapter 2. For now, we need to think of the, what is happening, what, what's transpiring. That In the womb of Mary is the Christ child who will be born. And then some 33 years later, we're going to see the great and final act of redemption. That the word has become flesh and dwelt among us, revealing his grace and truth. He has visited and redeemed his people. The question is, how has he done this? Verse 69 is a little bit confusing to us. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, most of us think of horn. We think of this thing right here or something similar. We think of an instrument that somebody's going to blow on. That is not what this means. Horn is a weapon of power. The horn symbolizes power. In fact, it symbolizes, according to William Hendrickson, destructive power. In Deuteronomy 33, 17, it says this, A firstborn bull 
He has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. This is an an image of judgment. Now, some of us have some, you know, cow images in our life. I don't know how many of you have ever been around like a bona fide bull. Um, I grew up with a friend who had a farm and they had a massive stud bull. That thing was, I, I couldn't stand to even stand on the other side of the fence of that thing. His back was as high as my head. And he was just one big mass of muscle. So the image here is a wild ox and a wild bull with big, massive horns. Now, where this ties together, when he says, in the house of his servant David, he's tying this together with Psalm 132, verse 17. There I will make a horn sprout for David. So this one of power and strength is coming from the house of David. Now he's tying us to the covenant that God has made with David, who was the king of what? Israel. Jewish. So he's tied to the, to the king of Israel. The promise to David is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that God promises that from his offspring that from his body he will establish the kingdom who will build a house for my name and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 2 Samuel 7, 13. So here's what Luke is doing, and he's helping you. Those of you who did not grow up in a, a, a Jewish complete understanding tradition, those of you who grew up as a Gentile, not fully understanding everything that the Old Testament has to say, he ties these truths together that Jesus is the one who has promised to be this horn of salvation from the house of David, just as God promised to David that he would do. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26, when Gabriel visits Mary, we're emphatically told that the virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And then it says in verse 32, he will be great and be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom of his kingdom there will be no end. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, this one simple sentence. Now you know this one. For unto us is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here's, here's what Zechariah is saying, that Jesus has come. The Word has been revealed. And the one who the prophets spoke of now speaks. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So here's the question then. What does he tell us? What is it that is revealed? And that is that the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Look in verse 70 of chapter 1. As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, I could take you to dozens of verses in the prophets to show you how Christ is the fulfillment of the promises given through these prophets in multiple different ways. I'll just allow the summary here to speak that that is what happened. To show, verse 72, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant to us. So God made a promise to another old man. An old man whose wife was old and they hadn't had any children. Notice the parallel as this begins. That God made a promise that they were going to have a son in their old age. And God bound this promise with a covenant that he made with Abraham. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 17, verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. You see, here's how God began his promise. That through Abraham, who was a Gentile, God establishes a nation, the nation of Israel, that from the nation of Israel, the offspring, who is Christ, was going to come. But this offspring who was coming was not just coming to save Israel. He was coming to save the nations. And that's God's promise that he made that from Abraham, he would be the father of a multitude of nations. The covenant has been kept and it has been fulfilled because the offspring of Abraham is Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. And we from a multitude of nations believe. You say, well, most of us in this room are Americans. We all came from somewhere else. There might be one or two Native Americans in here. We represent the nations in this room. And praise God that the message of the gospel has come to us and it is for us. He has extended His mercy to us. We don't think about this much because we're Americans. We're strong and proud. And God says you need mercy. You know why a person needs mercy? Because you have pity on them. You may have said this in your life. I'm not taking your pity. Well, then you're going to refuse the salvation of God then. That's a hang up for many of you in this room right now. That God has dealt with you in mercy. That you have need that only he can meet. And he's extended that mercy to you because of his promise. That he would be our God and that we would be his people. Now in verse 74, what Zechariah's song unfolds for us is the purpose of salvation. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now I want you to see this as it's written in its verse in its, in its song form. If you'll notice, 
might serve him without fear is separated from the above line. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Now let's first get the image might serve him without fear. Where, where would that come from? When God came to Moses, he said, you, you, you go and you tell Pharaoh this, that the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go, that they might serve me in the wilderness. The word serve in Exodus 7, 16, which I just quoted, and the word serve here in Zechariah's prophecy could also be translated and maybe ought to be translated worship. That they might worship me without fear. Worship him without fear. That they might worship him in the wilderness. God saves so that we might worship. Freedom is a good goal, but it is not the ultimate goal of God. So that we might not fear, we might worship without fear of our enemies. Now, brothers and sisters, if you're, unless you're asleep under a rock and you're not paying attention, you're going to have to make a decision in your lifetime. And you're already having to make this decision. I was talking to someone last night about where they work. You're going to have to make a decision whether you're going to serve God without fear of man. Whether you're going to let man dictate whether you serve God or not, just like Pharaoh was. Are we going to understand that Christ has saved us to worship him without fear of our enemies? But that fear has something to do with the next phrase. That we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Without fear of God. I don't mean reverence here. I mean, without fear of being punished. And the reason we don't need to fear being punished is that through Christ, we are holy with him, before him. We have been set apart. The righteousness of God, the holiness of Christ has been applied to our hearts and lives. So we stand right with God, justified before him all the days of our life. But from the moment that we are converted, we are now holy and righteous before God. This is not our own doing. This is the work of God. Now, we're not through with this explanation, but he interjects here just briefly about John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, here's what he's doing. Even though he's talking about his son briefly in this song, he's saying, my son is a fulfillment as well. He's the one that Malachi was talking about. He's the one who's going to go before the Elijah. He specifically here quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert, in the desert, a highway for our God. So John is not referred to as the baptizer. He is referred to as his primary function, the forerunner. The one who will give his people the knowledge of salvation for the, through the forgiveness of our sins. Because the forgiveness of sin does not come through John. It comes through the salvation that he makes known. Verse 77. To give knowledge of, of salvation to his people. That's unknowable unless God makes it known. And it is unknowable unless God makes it known through his servants. To make known, to give knowledge of the salvation of his people in the forgiveness of their sins. 
Here's why Christianity has become unimportant in our society. People do not think they need forgiveness because people think they don't sin. Well, wait, wait a minute. Ain't nobody perfect. You know that, preacher. Nobody's perfect. But I'm not that bad. Well, how bad are you? How bad is bad enough? Why, why would God say we need forgiveness of sins? Well, well it's so we won't go to hell. Well, well, careful, careful. I don't disagree with that, but there's something more going on here. There's something more happening. What, what do you need forgiveness of sin for? What's, what's actually happening? Tabidi Anawable preaching on this text said, quote, Why must sin be forgiven? Why is sin a problem? Because sin is an offense against a God who is holy. And God in His holiness and anger will punish the sinner forever unless the sinner is forgiven. So when we talk about being saved, we should ask, saved from what? The Bible's answer is you've been saved from God. I'm just going to let that sit on you for a moment because I can hear the argument. Well, God's love. Yes, He is. But God is also righteous and holy. And sin cannot exist in His presence. God, because He is right and holy, must deal with sin. He must punish it. God does not just look at it and go, it's okay. He must, in His righteousness, deal with that sin. Romans 6.23 says it this way. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The free gift of God. Now what that means for you and me as human beings is there's nothing we can do to earn or deserve this forgiveness, this free gift of God. It's free to us. But here's what needs to sit on us. It is in no way free. Jesus Christ died the death that we deserve and on the cross took the wrath of God in our place. Jesus took our punishment. He took it in full. Why? Because, verse 78, of the tender mercy of God. God knew and knows we cannot take care of this ourselves. It's God's tender mercy toward us. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Now Matthew picks this up 
and describes when Jesus began to go and to proclaim the kingdom of God. He did so in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beyond the river Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned that Christ has come. So his message was this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. I'm here, he says. So repent, turn from your sin. Christ has come, brothers and sisters. The sunrise has visited us and he will again visit us. He will return. But he has come and he has given light to those who are in darkness and under the shadow of death. (laughs) Now here's something that is very distinct in my very short life of ministry. People don't come to funerals anymore. Only a handful, unless it's some kind of tragic death that a community shares, but only a handful of people show up at funerals. And you can say, well, you know, people are busy Families are fragmented. People live all over the place. No. I can tell you why people don't come to funerals. Same reason they don't go to hospitals. People are scared to death of death. They don't want to think about it. They want to stay as far away from it as they possibly can. They don't want to acknowledge that the shadow of death is over them. Now, why do we not want to see that? It's because of the darkness. The darkness of our sin, which, which we may not bring to the surface and see, that darkness doesn't want light shed on it, so it'll run. <laughs> so I'm the first person out after funerals waiting on the body to come to the casket. And the first people that break through the door whip out their cigarettes. You wouldn't believe how many people come drunk to funerals now. People are scared to die, and rightly so. But God says we don't need to fear. The sun has risen. The light has shone, and the first thing it shines on is our heart and reveals our need for Christ. So we do what Jesus said to do. We repent. We turn from our sin and we turn to the one and only one who can save us from our sin, Jesus Christ the Lord. Later in the week, somebody shared with me that I needed to listen to John Piper's sermon on this text. I don't usually listen to a sermon before I preach on the same text, but out of respect to this brother, I went and listened to it. And Piper was like me. The reason he did this is because I had made a comment about the horn of salvation. He said, you need to listen to Piper. Piper concluded the sermon this way. He said, this is 1980. He said, if I could give you a gift at Christmas, I would paint you a picture. And here's what it would look like. It would be the sun coming up in the east with a knoll rising. And on top of that knoll, there would be an oxen powerful, standing six feet at his withers and eight feet to the top of his head. And out of both sides of his head would be two six-foot horns, 12 inches at the base and pierced, hanging on that 
horn would be our adversary. The lion who had been pierced through, who is now a defeated foe. Christ has won. Brothers and sisters, we don't serve a wimpy God. We serve the horn of salvation who has come and lived a sinless life and died a death he didn't deserve, a sinner's death in our place, though he never sinned, to redeem us. So at the end of the book of Acts, Luke writes and records these words, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. It's not that I can defeat the power of Satan or you can. It's that Christ has already defeated him so that we may receive forgiveness of sin. So, here's my question. Here's the so what for me today and you. Am I rejoicing in the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Rejoicing. And rejoicing involves two things. Listen very carefully. Rejoicing involves believing. If you don't believe something, you're not going to rejoice in it. Secondly, rejoicing involves proclamation. you got to say it. It's got to come out of you. Now, the reason many of you stood throughout this service so far and have not opened your mouth is because you don't believe anything going on and you don't want to make it known. William Hendrickson said it this way. Without doxology, true religion is inconceivable. What he meant is, without rejoicing, there is no true faith. I want you to look in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 29, but let me set the stage. There was another old man. He was a Jewish man. He knew the promises of the prophets. And in his reflection on the coming of the Messiah, the Spirit of God revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And one day in the temple, in walks this little young couple with a baby. And Simeon knew. And he took Jesus in his hands. And he blessed God, and this is what he said. Lord, Now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Isn't it interesting that this Jewish man in the temple says, the light has come and it's not just for Israel. It's a revelation to the Gentiles, to the peoples of the world. I'm ready to die, he says, for my eyes have seen. I hope if you outlive me and I come to your bedside, you'll have the peace of Simeon, brother or sister. And with rejoicing, Together we'll be able to sing and pray and say, I am ready to depart in peace, for my eyes have seen the salvation 
of our God. So have your eyes been opened to see the salvation. If they have, I want to give you an opportunity to rejoice and to proclaim your faith with joy. If your eyes have not been opened, but, but you sense a conviction that something's not right and there's something that you got to do, here's what I want to ask you to do, as many have already done today. After this service, I'm going to make my way to the lobby. I'm 6'4". You can find me. Just be patient. You wait and we'll talk. If, if you're not patient enough to find me, there are people with light blue shirts like this guy over here. These are people who serve on our staff. They're ready and willing to talk to you about what God's doing in your heart. But we have an opportunity right now to rejoice. Here's how we're going to do it. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, listen, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the question is, who can receive this communion time that we're about to do? The answer is very simple yet profound. All who are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. So if you're here today and you can say in the depths of your being that you're trusting in Christ alone to save you, not in your works or your performance or the fact you were at church today or that you're going to take this communion, that through taking communion it will save you. The communion has no saving power. The communion points to what has been done, the finished work of Christ. We come to receive, to proclaim that Christ has come and that he died and shed his blood for us and to give thanks for his saving work. So here's how we're going to do it. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And while I'm praying, people are going to make their way around you in different aisles and they're going to be holding a tray. In the center is the bread. On the outside is the cup. You're going to Walk to them when I tell you, you're going to take bread and a cup and you're going to go back to your seat and you're going to be seated or standing. You're going to pray and give thanks and you're going to receive the bread and cup and then join with the congregation in singing. So brothers and sisters, let us together proclaim his death. Let's pray. While I'm praying, servers, will you please make your way to your spot? Our Father, we confess that you alone save. You are the God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people and raised up the horn of salvation in the house of your servant, David. You have saved us by your mercy. You have delivered us from the hand of our enemies that we might worship you in holiness and in righteousness all of our days. Thank you that the light has shone on us. Now, Lord, may we come and rejoice in the light who is Christ. And may you be glorified as your people proclaim you together. Work as only you can. We pray in Christ's name. 
Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.